Hello, welcome to VocPod, the podcast that deals with all things vocation and discernment in the Church of England. This episode is the first of what I'm calling Coffee with VocPod, a series of interviews with people you might encounter at any stage of the vocation and discernment process. To get us started, we're talking today with one of the most central people you're likely to meet, the DDO, or Diocesan Director of Ordinance. I'm delighted to introduce the Reverend Dr John Fitzmaurice, DDO of Worcester Diocese. Hi John, thank you very much for joining us for Coffee with Vokpod. Now, of course, you're the DDO for, for Worcester Diocese. Could you just start us off by explaining who and what a DDO is and does? That's a good question. Um, actually, my job title is DDOV, but let's do the DDO thing to start with. Okay. So DDO is a kind of generic term um, that most people in my role have, and it means Diocesan Director of Ordinance. Um, my actual job title is Diocesan, no, it's Director of Ordinance and Vocation. Right. Um, uh, but the ordinance bit is simply, um, uh, ordinance is simply people who uh, have been accepted by the church to train as clergy. Uh, and the role of a DDO is to oversee the process, um, primarily of selection of those people, and then to oversee their training um, at college, of course, until they're ready to come back to the diocese to serve their curacy. Another part of my role, and this is specific to this diocese, is that I also look after curates, but that's, that's DDOs normally wouldn't do that. Um, right. that's, a, that's a particular Worcester thing. So in Worcester Diocese, those two roles are combined into yep. your job? Yeah, yeah. Right, yep. okay. Yep. And just so, I mean, to clarify on this, um, for anyone who is wondering, a curate, um, can you just explain what a curate is? A curate is somebody who's just been ordained. So the first uh, three or four years of ordained life is generally spent um, in a mode of being that can probably best be described as an apprenticeship. Um, you work with an experienced practitioner, the buck doesn't stop with you. And actually you just learn the practicalities of the job. In the old days, there was a kind of notion that you, that you did your time in college, you learned all the theory of ministry. And then you were ordained, and then you spent your curacy doing the practicality. There was a great divide between the two. Right. Um, thankfully, nowadays the church is a bit more enlightened and tries to integrate uh, the, the academic learning and, and the practical uh, application of it. Um, so, so there's there's a there's a much more overlap than there used to be. But but fundamentally, college is, is a period of training uh, and formation, particularly academic training and formation. Um, and curacy has a greater focus. Um, on, on practical application and, and kind of theological reflection, actually applying some of that stuff that they've learned in college um, and seeing how it works out in real life. That's really interesting, isn't it? That kind of idea that you start with a more academic focus that sort of talks about practice in, in maybe in theoretical terms, and then the training goes on to sort of more, more practical, and there the academic side becomes the more theoretical bit. How does this actually work in practice? Yeah. And part of your role is to is to facilitate that and encourage it for for curates. Yes, yes. And I mean, I do I do value highly training. I mean, it's, it's kind of no brainer, of course. I'd say that, wouldn't I? Um, but there's something about needing to learn the grammar, the grammar of faith, the grammar of ministry. And until we've done that foundational stuff, um, we're really, I think, quite disadvantaged in, in, in our practical ministry. Um, we can all want to go out and do good things. Um, of course, we want to do that. Um, but there are specific ways, and, and our faith calls us to do them 
do specific things in specific ways. And I think that's about learning the grammar of faith. Yeah. So I, I, I do think time in college, time on a course, uh, learning theological, learning biblical grammar actually is a good thing. Uh, and then actually bringing that out into the world and, and, and dealing with the collision between that grammar and reality, finding God in the mix somewhere. Let's just sort of go back to the beginning of that process and think a little bit about the, the starting point of, of what happens when you encounter a DDO for the first time. What's the sort of thing that people can expect to, to encounter when, when, when that meeting takes place? And there are usually a few um, steps before you meet a DDO uh, for people who are beginning to get an inkling. God might be calling me to, to do this. Um, sometimes that's something that people feel stirring up inside themselves. Sometimes it's something people, other people say to them, you know, have you ever thought of? But usually there's a bit of a wrestling that goes on. For most people, the response is, oh, don't be stupid. <laughs> Please, God, no. But actually, if it, if it persists, usually people go and talk to um, the clergy, their vicar, a wise friend, a wise Christian friend, and just say, do you know what? I have this kind of niggle that won't go away. And, and some, somewhere along the way, they, they, somebody will say, no, you need to go and see the DDO. Um, and then a bit like your opening question, the response is generally, well, what's that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they end up in, in, in my office. And it's probably better to ask a candidate rather than me how, what the experience of that, that hour and a half is. And I like to think that it's just a fairly gentle exploration of who they are, what's driving them, what's brought them there. Um, I do profoundly think God calls us, if God calls us to ordained ministry, he calls us to a unique ordained ministry. He calls us to ministry, the shape that he has made us. So the question isn't just, are you called to ordained ministry? It's kind of, you know, what does David-shaped ministry look like? Does Mary-shaped ministry look like? So there's something about... Is there a generic call to priesthood here? But there's also something about, well, how might that work within who you are and the circumstances of your life and your experience of life? So we'll be just beginning to tease that out. Um, and the whole vocations process, the whole discernment process, I hope, and this can be a frustration for some candidates, I hope it's slow and spacious and gives time for people to grow and change, gives time for the spirit to work. So, I mean, it's not unusual for the, you know, to take at least a year, if not 18 months um, in discernment. Um, because we, we dig quite deeply, you know, where, how deep have you let God into your life? How deep have you let God redeem your brokenness? Um, but I hope it's done gently and expansively. And that first meeting is just to kind of kick all that kind of stuff off. That's a really interesting point. I think about the, the time that it takes to do this. Uh, this is not like a, you turn up and have a, a couple of interviews and a, you know, a group session or something, and then off you go. This is quite in-depth stuff yeah. that takes a long time and goes into all sorts of different facets of your life. Mm. I think when I first came forward, quite naively, I sort of thought, well, you know, maybe a couple of months or something, um, and was a bit surprised to discover actually how long it takes and for me it was more like three years and actually in hindsight I'm I'm quite pleased about that it gave me a lot of time to explore and grow 
and discover more about myself in the process. So I'm guessing that that's why it takes so long. And I think that that experience of being quite grateful for it in retrospect is not uncommon. Um, I, th- <laughs> I think a lot of people can feel quite frustrated yeah. when they're in the process, saying, I'm here, I'm ready, just tell me what I need to do. You know, the church is desperate to take me. Um, and the church is going, no, slow down, slow down. We need just to be sure this is of God. And I always say, you know, the worst outcome of the discernment process is not people not being recommended. It's people being recommended who shouldn't be, because that, that, that shatters lives, basically. And so it's absolutely right we take this seriously uh, and take our time. And, and it's, again, it's not uncommon for tectonic plates in people's lives to start to shift in the process, because they start engaging with the workings of the spirit quite profoundly. And actually they find their faith challenged, their self-understanding challenged. And it, and, you know, it's not called a process of formation by accident. Um, our formation in ministry starts within the discernment process. And we feel God doing things, pulling us in new directions, giving us new insights, understanding things we thought we understood in, in quite different ways. Um, and it's, it's right and proper that that's given the time and space that it needs pick up on a phrase you you use there that, that really underneath the process is the the question of is this of God is this something that God is calling this person to do now the the discernment process of course uses a number of criteria to help assess that could you just briefly kind of outline what those criteria are I'm putting you on the spot <laughs> you people do this to me what are the nine criteria I think um, but just in broad terms what, what are they for and, and how do they help the church kind of work through that question of is, is this of God yes so the nine criteria as they currently stand um and there are three groups of three so there's a vocational criteria which is a person's sense of call uh, and I've already said that's a balance between Something happened, had something happen inwardly for them and, and an external validation of that. So other people saying, yes, I think this is, this is right for you. And, and, and there's chicken and egg in that. Sometimes the external things come before the internal ones, sometimes the other way around. Um, then there's something about ministering the Church of England. Uh, why is God calling you to this particular expression of Christian faith? You know, the Church of England, the Anglican Church, has never considered itself to be the last word in, in being community of faith. It's that it's part of a worldwide church, um, and it's a particular expression of faith within that worldwide church, that global church. And why is God calling us to ministry specifically in the Church of England? Uh, and, and then thirdly, within the within the vocational criteria of the spirituality, which is how do you nurture your relationship with God? What is your relationship with God like? How do you cultivate that? How do you keep yourself fresh? How do you how do you honor your primary vocation as a disciple? Never mind any subsequent vocation you may have to ministry. Um, then there's the pastoral um, three criteria and personality and character. So kind of, you know, what kind of person are you? Um, how do you work? And um, what are the scars that you carry? What are the skills you bring? Uh, all of that kind of stuff. Um, who are you deep down as a person? And how can you how have you let God transform you? And how can you continue to let God transform you? Um, and the rec- part of that is the recognition that we are all broken. Um, you know, the call, the call to ministry, the call to be a wounded healer. But just to check that that brokenness is acknowledged consciously and that we control it and not it us. 
Um, secondly, then there's relationships, how do we work with other people? What are our interpersonal skills like? And then leadership and collaboration. Uh, what is our experience of, of exercising leadership in within the church and within wider society? Are we the kind of people uh, that can, within the community of faith, exercise leadership for the benefit of that community and the wider society? And then the final three criteria are the educational criteria, faith, what is your understanding of Christian faith? And as I say, often the discernment process challenges people to rethink quite a lot of that, quite a profound level. Uh, and that's the kind of, uh, the so the faith criteria is the kind of the knowledge criteria. And then there's mission and evangelism. How do you apply this? What's your track record in applying this? Uh, what have you done in ministry to this point? And then finally, quality of mind. Um, quality of mind is the one that usually scares people the most, actually, because we haven't got many degrees. And I forever say to candidates, it's not a quality of mind criteria, it's not about having lots of degrees, but it is about being able to unpick complexity. And that ministry in the church is exercised uh, within the complexity of our society, and society has probably never been as complex as it is at the moment. And if we're to speak wisely of God within that context, we need to be able to handle complexity and to be able to help people unpick and unravel their deeply complex lives and, and discern God at the heart of all that. So quality of mind is about being able to deal with complexity. So these are, are quite sort of all-encompassing things really. Trying to work through that is a very broad kind of spectrum of what someone thinks and believes and what they are. And at the end of that, so these are the, the criteria that are explored alongside either a, a DDO or an associate DDO who's working as part of the team. And at the end of that process of, of exploration, candidates at the moment go to an advisory panel where they're assessed against the criteria. And as you pointed out, they're in groups of three. There's a vocations advisor, pastoral advisor, and an education advisor. What, what's the purpose of, of that end bit of the process? I think it's to offer candidates as an ob objective assessment of their their vocation as possible. Um, it's also to say that their vocation is, you know, people do have a vocation to ordained ministry, and that is within the wider community of faith. It's actually not just a local thing, it's not just a diocesan thing. Um, if, if, if God is calling us to ordained ministry, he's calling us to exercise that within the wider church, and it's right and proper that is affirmed by the wider church. So at a bishop's advisory panel, none of the advisors will be from a candidate's home diocese because they will, to get to the, to the bishop's advisory panel, the BAP, they will already have been affirmed, first of all, by the DDO um, or the DDO team, then by the sponsoring bishop. So they will have that local affirmation already, first of all, by the parish. The kind of parish, DDO team, sponsoring bishop, and they will bring that affirmation to the national selection panel. And if a candidate is recommended, that gives a candidate a national affirmation that, yes, the church nationally recognises that God has put into this ministry. Uh, and as I say, that is discerned as objectively as possible by people who don't know the candidates prior to the, prior to the event. So I, uh, having just sort of covered that, this is kind of how the process works. You just mentioned the, the sponsoring bishop. Um, this is quite an important thing. You, just noticing that what the panel at the end does is gives a recommendation. So they don't actually say one way or the other whether someone goes forward for training. They just give a recommendation. Yeah. Um, and it's actually down to the bishop to make that final decision. So the bishop's role is still quite an important one in this whole process. Yes. And, and, and the way the church works, it's, you know, it's the role of the, the bishop within the church 
to sponsor candidates for ordination. I mean, it, it, there's a slight paradox that actually the, it's through the bishop that you get to go through the bat, then advises the bishop. But it's, it's the, the sponsorship is about the bishop saying, yes, the, you know, I as bishop and uh, the team of people who I charge with, you know, doing discernment with the diocese, think there is something to play for in this candidate. Uh, we'd like this tested at a national level. Could you confirm or challenge um, our own reading of this candidate? Um, and, and then report back to me. Uh, and bishops are free to overturn the advice of panels, actually as advice, and there are advisory panels, uh, they're not tied by that advice. And some bishops do, some bishops don't. And in the Diocese of Worcester, the bishops have a policy of not overturning uh, the advice of, of perhaps. So having just sort of covered how the process works at the moment, it's probably worth just pointing out uh, that the process is actually about to change mm-hmm. um, because we, I mean, I, in my own sort of reading about this stuff, just out of personal interest, this is this system has been in place more or less since the early 1980s. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we're doing at the moment, what the church nationally is doing at the moment is probably the biggest shakeup reform of how the church does discernment in that sort of 40 year period. And we've got what's called the new shared discernment framework, which talks in terms of qualities rather than criteria. Could you just outline what the thinking behind this change is? So as far as I understand it, I mean, the first thing I'd say is I think I welcome it. Um, I think I think there's been nothing wrong with the nine criteria. I think they've served the church well in the past. Um, I think I th- and I think this this new um, process isn't actually saying there's anything wrong with the old process. It's just saying I think we can do this even better. And I think at its heart is a particular drive uh, to encourage greater diversity of people coming forward and, and to make uh, discernment of ordained ministry more accessible to a wider variety, diverse cohort of people. I think that the change of language from criteria to qualities is I mean, the danger of criteria-based language is it can feel a bit kind of tick box. Um, you know, I'll meet the criteria for that, I'll meet the criteria for that. Um, and actually ministry doesn't work like that. God doesn't work like that. And this is why the kind of, you know, personality and character thing is so important. It's why that spacious approach to the discernment process time-wise uh, is so important because, because ministry is done in and through who we are by God's grace. And we change in the process and we change and it doesn't stop us for all day, we continue to change. And it's something about the quality of our humanity that, that God is able to work through. And so I do, I do quite like the fact that we're looking at the quality of people, the quality of their humanity, the quality of their love for God, the quality of their love for others, those kind of things, because it's through it's through that kind of almost untangible thing of quality that actually most of our ministry is exercised. Ministry is not a kind of tick box, learn to do this, not a job to be done. Um, essentially, it's, it's a relationship to be built um, with individuals and with, with, with the communities. Um, and it's the quality of those relationships and the quality of personal personality that we bring to those relationships is the way we do ministry. So I, I like the thing around quality, and I, and I think the new framework is trying to just capture some of that. It's not about tick boxes, it's about deep understanding who we are as people. I think one of the, the sort of the key things that's come out through this, this new process is that this is not about simplifying the system or making it easier. It is about making it more accessible, but just 
as rigorous and actually the the kind of things the qualities are looking for are the, really the same as what the the criteria were but in a slightly different way i think that would you say that that's a, an important thing to just make clear to people that this is this is not a dumbing down and the bottom line is priesthood remains priesthood remains priesthood you know priesthood is not changing um, again it's always a, a slightly contested understanding of the church within the church there will be a wide variety of how people understand both priesthood and the diaconate. And, and that's right and proper that that can, thinking stimulates us and challenges us. It's, uh, what, what the criteria tried to do and what the new, new process is trying to do is simply, it's kind of how you cut the cake really, um, just to find new ways of expressing, new ways of trying to capture uh, the essence of how the church understands priesthood ministry or a diaconal ministry in the 21st century. Uh, and it's not again for the language of qualities, which I, I, I think is welcome. But 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 you know the reality is this process is not redefining what it means to be a priest. I think there's a there's always an ongoing conversation as to how priestly ministry adapts to the context in which it finds itself. Uh, and that has been from the beginning of the church and will continue until um, the end of the church. That's not necessarily what this new process is about, um, though it, it is trying to be obviously relevant and appropriate for the context in which we find ourselves. Uh, it's just a, a different way of, of accessing the language around priesthood. And if it's okay, I'll just go into a, a bit of your backstory. Um, yeah. As a DDO, you, you started out in in parish ministry and then decided to, to start work as a, as a full-time uh, DDO uh, in Worcester Diocese. How did you discover a vocation to help others with their vocations? Um, so the DDO in my last diocese, who curiously enough has retired to the Diocese of Worcester, um, I, I used to joke with him that he used to send people on placement to my parish um, with the tagline, if John doesn't put them up, nobody else will. Um, you know, they'll probably be okay <laughs> if they can survive him. They'll, they'll, they'll probably flourish in ministry. Um, I, whether or not that's true, I, I don't know. But but I ended up having uh, a significant number of people on placements in, in my last parish and, and loving it um, and having at times multiple people on placement at the same time and be able, being able to facilitate a conversation uh, amongst them and do theological reflection with them. Uh, and more and more got into that ministry of working with individuals um, doing some training uh, with the diocese, going into spiritual direction. And all this stuff was kind of going on as well. And I was, you know, trying to be a parish priest at the same time. And I just got to the point vocationally, vocationally for me that said, am I, am I going to stay in parish ministry or do I have to acknowledge that I think God may be calling me to do, do something else? So there was a, there was a process of the seminar I went through uh, in, in terms of that, 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 that brought, into, brought to bear all the things we've been talking about, about my previous experience and who I am and all, all that kind of stuff. And, and it has to be said, I'm looking at the DDO. It makes me feel hugely optimistic about the future of the church, which is not fashionable at the moment, but when you meet the people that you and I do that do this work, it's hard not to be optimistic. Yeah. I, yeah, that's, it's a really affirming thing, isn't it? Sometimes both of us uh, actually work as bishop's advisors. Yeah. Um, as well so we see the process all the way through from uh, the beginning through to the end obviously not for the same candidates but for, for other candidates and it is true we we meet some of the most remarkable people and it, it does give a sense of optimism which is which is really lovely thank you if you were to be able to give a piece of advice to anyone who's listening to this who who might be tentatively dipping a toe in the water and thinking maybe god is calling me to do something 
what piece of advice would you would you give them on on how to get started? Two, I mean, the two things that come to, came to mind as you asked the question was first of all, pray. So just keep the connection going. You know, if anyone's if anyone's going to affirm this vocation for you, it's not me. It's not even the bishop. It's God. God calls you, and we just do our best to recognize that call. Um, so there's there's something fundamental about just fun, fundamentally nurture your relationship with God. Keep praying, in, in, and particularly in in ways that are open-ended, contemplative, a listening kind of prayer. Make yourself available to God. Um, be open to whatever it is God might be wanting you know, to, to, to say to you. Um, and that may be to continue down this road. It may be not to continue down this road, um, but be open to that. Um, and secondly, I think I would say trust your instincts. It's not uncommon for people to arrive at their first interview with, with a DDO and it'll say, well, you know, why do you think God is calling you to be, to be ordained? And they will go, oh, I don't really know. I just have this kind of feeling. And I, and I honour that because I think that is that is a very real experience for many people, not for all, but for many people, that sense of calling, that sense of being you know, of vocation to something is, is profoundly intuitive and it's profoundly difficult to put into words because on one level, it does actually transcend words. So trust the gut feeling that you have and then come and talk to us and we will hopefully enable you and encourage you to put some kind of language around that. And But pray, first of all, and then trust your trust your guts, trust your intuition around it. I, I know that a lot of people, um, one of the first things they, they say to me when they're exploring something is, I think I'm called to something, I just don't know what. Mm. That seems to be quite a, a common thing. And I think that sort of trusting your instinct points people in the right direction. If there was one, now I'm going to put you on the spot here a bit, if there was one book mm-hmm. that you think readers could be recommended what, what would you suggest? It's a really interesting question. I mean, I, I do think probably the great classic is still Michael Ramsey's Christian Peace Today. It suffers a bit because it's gender-exclusive language. It was written before the era of, of, of women priests. And, and it just, when you read it, it jars a little bit because of that. Um, it's, I mean, it's relatively short. It's hugely readable. And of everything I've read, it still captures most succinctly, I think, what it means to be uh, to, to exercise in ordained ministry. Um, there's a second book that I'm pondering, and it's a book that I very seldom recommend to people, and I feel a bit guilty about this, um, called The Priest-like Task by Wesley Carr. And it's a very interesting book in as much as it, it, it takes the very classical understanding of ordained ministry and sets it within a very contemporary understanding of the psychodynamics of leadership without diminishing either. Um, and and that's, that's its clever bit. Um, it's not a kind of, you know, psychobabble understanding of priesthood. It, the integrity of the church's traditional understanding of priesthood is retained, but engaged with something that is utterly contemporary. So either of those two, I mean, I think Michael Ramsey is, is the easier of the two. Um, the Wesley Carr book is a bit of a, um, a speciality book, but it's a stunning book as well. Thank you, John. Thank you so much for giving up your time to join us today and talk about this stuff. We'll be in future episodes, we'll be looking a little bit in more detail, perhaps, at some of the the later stages of the process. So if you be able to join us in future uh, to cover some some other bits and pieces, that would would be really great. But thank you so much for, for joining us today. So following on from John's recommendation, our next episode will be a book review. 
of Michael Ramsey's The Christian Priest today. So join us then for the next episode of VocPod. Mm-hmm.